Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's World Cup final weekend. Owen Ware from Ken here with today's Irish Times second captain's podcast. Hi, Kieran. Hello there, Owen. Hi, Ken. You can drag yourself, drag your face out of that Sam Allardyce book for a couple of minutes for us. <laughs> Just reading about Sam Allardyce. This uh, is a workplace, you know, uh, Ken. You seem to be having an, an obscene amount of fun reading uh, Big yeah. Sam. I love, I love Big Sam. He's just talking about how he loves dressing up in drag. Some of the lads thought I was a little bit too keen to put on women's clothing, <laughs> says Big Sam. Then he provides a picture of himself dancing in a sort of pink... Uh, sort of marionette outfit or something. It's... Yeah, it's like a, like a pink air stewardess-style jacket, um, peaked cap, long auburn wig, lipstick, and uh, PVC skirt. And he's dancing at the... At the I mean, why wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. It's, for, it's for cancer research. What's the problem? Everyone just chill out. Yeah. Uh, so I've I've literally just realised that we had this book sitting here in this room, Owen, and I've been uh, flicking through it. And um, I look forward I think to I'm going to read this one. No, yeah, yeah, I think I'm you are. This one. I don't mean to burst anyone's bubble, but World Cup finals aren't very good, are they? They're I, crap. One. I'm going to say this, there's never been a good World Cup final in any sport in the history of organised oh. field sports. Well, '66 and all that. <laughs> I did that. say across the. Uh, you know they the uh, they thought it was all over there, Murph. <laughs> yeah, well it. The, it was soon after. All those World Cup finals were were good until um, until nineteen ninety. That was the first bad one. Eighty six was three two. Yeah, that was pretty good. Oh, okay, all right. We'll, was stick three to, one. we'll stick to in rugby. our lifetime. In our in, since we have become sentient beings capable of remembering World Cup. Finals. Yeah, let's. I'm going to be honest. I just put that out as this yeah sort of polarizing point that I didn't really oh, yeah. agree with. I just thought. Well, no, no. Get Jim people Rome, in. Jim no, Rome. Rome. I've, I've, I've been reading books. How to present a podcast effectively. Jim Rome. <laughs> uh, no, no. Back yourself. In your lifetime, since you can remember watching sport, well, there hasn't been one. Well, I'm good sure there have been some good cricket work. Obviously, I said every, every sport, ah. but I'm going to stick to rugby here, right? 1987, New Zealand hammer France. France don't turn up. Nobody really cared. Uh, what was 1990? Uh, 1990. Oh, Australia. Yeah, that was a terrible game, but it was quite funny because Australia, in the build up to it, said, Ah, oh, yeah, you know, the problem with England is, I mean, they're just 
the Bosch merchants, you know, just kind yeah. of they stick it up the jumper. They'd be they'd be afraid to actually go come out and play rugby with us. And England said, "Oh, wait a second, we've got great players out there. We'll show you." Wide. Australia said, "Thanks very much. We'll just pick you off there. <laughs> Boom, win." Twelve six. Well, yeah, uh, fifteen twelve to South Africa. Nineteen ninety five. South Africa versus Yeah, incredible occasion and all that, but terrible game. I, d- I thought it was a good game. Yeah, it was went, to, game. went to extra time as I recall. Matt Damon had a great game as I recall. Yeah, <laughs> really good. Uh, the rugby in the in the film seemed to be pretty. It seemed pretty tense. I haven't watched the '95 final back yeah. since you know I watched it live. Yeah. Uh, there is actually a great YouTube clip of like the la- of the celebrations, and I've watched that. That seemed pretty good. '99 Australia, France again not turning up. Yeah. This great World Cup team that France are supposed to be, and they tend to flop, and they actually get to the final. Uh, 2003. England, uh, England winning Australia. in Australia. Mm-hmm. See again, like a lot also of extra time. That was good. That yeah, was... extra time. We just yeah, there was a well, there were, maybe there was a try each. Was there? Then Jason Robinson Jason scored a try, and one, there yeah. was a try for Australia, but not a not a great game. Tension, sure, Ex- excitement in that way, but that's the minimum requirement for mm. a final of a World Cup. Mm. Two thousand seven was bad. South Africa against England. I actually can't remember anything about it. That's how bad it was. South Africa won. Yeah, uh, didn't they win a bit bit too easily? Yes. Uh, England had uh, had muscled their way to the final again. Andrew Sheridan, of course. <laughs> Your favourite rugby player? Uh, I remember Stephen Jones in the in the Sunday Times getting very excited about Andrew Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, he... Uh, he called him like the foremost athlete in world sport or something. <laughs> yeah. He was like the most devastating sports. And he managed to get world. in a sly dig on an Irish player just apropos of nothing. Yeah. In the same piece, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, As opposed to John Hayes, let's talk about John Hayes. For but us. but the the weird thing about that was that Eng- that England and South Africa played in that World Cup. Didn't South Africa win by about forty points or something crazy? Thirty six thirty six nil. Yeah, yeah. And then England. Okay, it wasn't thirty six nil in the final, was it? No, it was like more. No, no. respectable. Twenty eleven, terrible, terrible. France. Well, France did turn up that time actually. Yeah, total greasy and crawl past them. So I'm going to say no good World Cup, no really high quality World Cup final yet until this weekend. It's all going to change around. Hmm. And we'll have Matt Williams in the studio in a little while. Shag Horgan. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, we're not going to have Shag Horgan on today, but uh, we will have Matt Williams in. Quite a few massive GA autobiographies out this year. We interviewed Henry Shefflin about his book. Tommaso Shays is just out at the moment. Uh, seems to be doing well. I'm looking forward to Jim McGuinness's, which I think is out tomorrow. It's out on Friday in, yep. in the bookshops. Yeah, you might have read the Irish Times... Um, What's the word? Why have we had a blank? Excerpts. Excerpts, extracts, yeah. You might have read them at the weekend. Serialization. There are a lot of words yeah. I could have dug out of my mind this, there. I hope you enjoyed the small bits <laughs> of the book that they put in the newspaper. And they pasted it in. The, all right, I haven't read them all yet, but I'm going to wager they're all slightly different, very different, in fact, in tone and content of the story we're going to cover today. John Leonard spent a number of seasons as Stephen Cluxton's number two for Dublin. This is in the sort of Peter Caffrey era. Off the field, though, his life was... A mess, really, for a long time. He was heavily into drink and drugs. Having gone through huge emotional turmoil, he was sexually abused as a boy by a paedophile priest. Now, the book is called Dub Sub Confidential, and it details both those... I'm simplifying it a bit, obviously, but both those strands to his life, you know, the obsession with trying to become the number one goalkeeper for the dubs, which I always like. I always like any sort of story of somebody who's not necessarily the biggest name. The, actually, what most people go through in their sporting careers trying to strive to just get onto a team. And then there's the other part, him getting to grips with the madness of his life off the field. So we will chat to John. Looking forward to that one a little bit later. Simon, I've been downplaying the World Cup Finals, but I did mention that I'm looking forward to it. I think particularly Michael Checa there it does add a certain interest. Yeah, well, obviously the Leinster days, but also he's coming across as really likeable. He looks like he's actually enjoying the World Cup as opposed to every other coach in it. 
the things he's saying that we spoke about with Shane Horgan yeah, earlier in the week about with Matt Williams. Just, yeah, just playing entertaining rugby, being humble, bit, yeah. all those things. The fact that he took over a year ago, the fact that he's blown away this four-year plan that Murph has spoken about as well, this nonsense that we talk about in rugby. And then I think also the fact that he came into Leinster, a province with no success whatsoever, um, always threatening to do something, but really were a bit of a mess as a province, bullied them into shape, won a European Cup, uh, then goes to the Waratahs. We're in a very similar situation. Uh, lots of similarities between the two. Goes and wins uh, the Super 15 there. If he goes and wins a World Cup with this Australian team, who have like they the actual starting team are brilliant. But if he goes from Leinster to Waratahs and wins a World Cup with this Australian team, who most people didn't really rate. Like when Dennis Hickey brought it up, we kind of thought, oh yeah, Australia. I suppose they could oh, possibly yeah. get out of Dennis their group next week. In yeah, Australia, yeah. Yeah. they've come out of the toughest group in World, rugby World Cup history. I think he's the best coach in the world, best rugby coach in the world if he does it. Michael Cheka just scouring the world for underachieving talented teams mm. that he can coach into coach into shape and with, yeah. throw, with kind of some talented people who are kind of going off the rails a little bit yeah. and aren't sure if they want to be involved in the setup. Yeah. Matt Williams is in studio for the last time this World Cup. Matty excited about Saturday? It's hard not to be excited, isn't it? It's uh just been a World Cup that just keeps on giving and giving and giving and we've got the um the prospect of a fantastic World Cup. Well, some great news for you today. I don't know if you've been following this, but the New Zealand Herald reports the Australian Rugby Union has reportedly passed down an unofficial edict to its members and the Wallabies stating, please do not call them the All Blacks. They did a press conference last night and not one player mentioned the All Blacks by their nickname, I suppose you'd call it. That's so your, your campaign, your years of campaigning has finally gotten through. Their registered <laughs> trademark. Their registered trademark. Yeah, I don't, don't know if it'll do us any good. <laughs> I think they're going to get hockey, it's actually. <laughs> it's, we'll, we'll go out not calling them by that name. Anyway. It, is a nice, it is a nice little insight all the same, though. I mean, we, and this is what everyone's hoping, that Australia are the one country, well, not that South Africa feared New Zealand, but Australia are one of the few countries who'll go in there, will immediately have respect from New Zealand, and on the other side of things, won't won't you would assume Australia will turn up? Put it that way. You would, and and this is the um, the advantage of playing them every year. Uh, for the last, oh, I think from the nineteen eighties, late nineteen eighties, Australia plays a minimum of one game against New Zealand a year. In the last few years, because they've been bankrupt and trying to make money, they played them. Th- it's a three game series every year. This year was only two because of the World Cup. But if you play a team three times a year and you face the Harker three times and you listen to the rubbish three times, eventually you go, well, it's just another day at the office, you know. And I know it's a big day and a big World Cup final for sure. But um, Australia's beaten New Zealand more than any country in the world because we play them more than anyone. But you have massive respect for them. We know how great they are. But we live with New Zealanders every day. I was literally, why I, I was rushing in here to see you guys, my best mate in Australia is married to a New Zealander. And I was texting him saying, mate, I don't want to be in your household this week. But we live with New Zealanders. You know, my auntie married and our family's in New Zealander. We, 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 we work with them in our, our office. You know, there's two or three Kiwis I work with. I played with them. Our team was always, you know, four or five Kiwis in every team, every club. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, we're just part of our community, which makes it worse because you've got to win. <laughs> Otherwise, we've got to live with them for the next four years, you know, when they're giving it to us. But you, you, we do have that familiarity. And there's no doubt New Zealand rugby has made Australian rugby stronger because of that. Uh, if, if it wasn't for New Zealand, Australian rugby wouldn't be anywhere near as strong because rugby is just so isolated as a sport in Australia. We need the Kiwis and the South Africans and now the Argentinians to, to keep us up to that standard. And, and to be fair to the Kiwis, they, um, 
they always turn up and play great rugby in Australia. They are a huge attraction. But the benefit of that for this week is um, th that's not going to phase them. There's not, there's not that uh, on your knees, wow, we're playing this iconic brand. Um, you know, and it does annoy me here in Ireland that we still talk about Munster beating, you know, New Zealand all those years ago, which was a great feat, and I'm not taking anything away from those guys. But it's terrible. It's a terrible indictment on the game that Irish rugby has never beaten them. Australia's beaten them 50 times. And Ireland's beaten Australia a number of times, number of times. In, in the last few years, they've beaten them, uh, in, in my time here, uh, three times, I think, they've beaten Australia. Joe Schmidt, Brian Driscoll's first game and then at the World Cup, yet they've never beaten in 100 years New Zealand. And I still come here and people put them up on a pedestal. And they do. There's a psychological issue. And whilst the New Zealand Herald just stirring the pot, it, it is an issue. You can't put them up on this altar or you'll never beat them. Whatever about the Aussie mindset, is it important, do you think, if you're going to try and beat New Zealand, that in some way they respect you, that they fear you? We always hear the Irish players saying, until we beat them, and it's kind of chicken and egg situation, but for Ireland it, it certainly is, that they just, if they don't fear you, they're never going to lose to you. Whereas, like we talk about South Africa, but I think New Zealand know they have a superior playing style always to South Africa. But with the Wallabies, they know their surprises. They don't know quite what's coming up. And while South Africa are kind of defensive against New Zealand, you talk about their, the, that's their culture and their rugby culture in, in Africa particularly, whereas Australia attack, like they have a plan to attack and go at you. There's zero fear when they face New Zealand, and that's one of the most important things in beating New Zealand. I'd agree with that. I'd I'd put it to a into another way that the New Zealanders actively foster that um, inferiority of the others. You know, we, we won't respect you too. We beat. They never say that. But if you that, and that's the whole point about the All Black thing. As much as I joke about it, if you buy into that culture that they are superior, you, you by definition you're bought into the culture that you're inferior. And Australia, having beaten them this year, um, ha have have some semblance of uh, um, mental parity uh, with New Zealand. And New Zealand would always look at Australia and say, "Look, they're the team that has got a got a shot against us." Now we've got to, we've got to put this in the perspective. From from I'll get my numbers right here. From the late nineties through to two thousand and three, you know, Australia dominated the Bledisloe Cup and dominated New Zealand. And in those 10 years before that, it was a 50-50 battle. But since 2003, New Zealand have well and truly dominated Australia. Uh, I think we've only beaten them twice in that, in that period. But that says a lot about the poor culture of that time, says a lot about guys not contributing the way they had, not being mentally, this is the Australian players, not being mentally tough enough, not having pride, not doing the work and not understanding the New Zealand mindset. New Zealanders, and I say this with great respect, and I, I mean that, with, with, I say it with admiration, they are ruthless on a rugby field. They give you nothing. They will do whatever it takes to win. And unless you get down in the gutter with them and have that same mindset, you're going to get beaten. And it's a great credit to Michael Checker that he's, he's somehow managed in the, in the shambles that is Australian rugby, and I mean it is a shambles that he's got 15 to 17 players that are capable of getting down in the gutter and fighting as hard as the Kiwis. And that's not an easy thing to do. Shane Horgan was telling us on Monday how impressed he is with Cheka's messaging, I think he called it, just the way he's communicating. They're playing all this great rugby, not so much against Scotland, but no matter what they're doing, he's, he's staying pretty steady. He's still 
putting it out there that you know we're we're just having a crack at this. We're we're, we're doing the best we can here. We're just gonna play each game as it comes. All this kind of stuff. When secretly he's thinking probably from the start, there's a chance to win this tournament. There's a good chance to win this tournament. Michael Checker uh, has played the media magnificently. He's played it better than anyone I have ever seen. Really, you've noticed that as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Michael. <laughs> I coach Michael, uh, and I, I know him well, and I have great admiration for him. Um, he's done a he's done a did a wonderful job at Leinster, did a wonderful job of the Waratahs. Two teams really close to my heart, uh, and he, he he's done a, a better job than I ever thought he could do in the short time with Australia. I thought Michael in a few years might be doing something. He's been fantastic, but he has played them. He, he, Michael at best is a grumpy old bugger, and he smiled and laughed and said, "Oh, is there bonus points at the World Cup? Do you remember that? Is there bonus points?" <laughs> Oh, we didn't even know there were bonus points at the World Cup. Like, and everyone goes, "Do you think he meant it?" Of course, he didn't mean it. He's just, he's, he, he's messaging as Shag would say, Shane would say, is right. He has been uh, respectful. He's been very humble. He's laughed. He's, he's put out the, the message. There's no pressure on us, and he, everyone's bought into it. And he's come into this final saying the same thing. The, the difference is in this final, he's right. Yeah, he's right. If, if we put a full stop on the Australian performance today. It has been one of the greatest performances from an Australian team I've ever seen because we have so few players. And you saw it last week. You take CO out of that scrum, the scrum collapse. We have one loosehead prop of international standard in the country. One. And they've made the final of the World Cup. I saw Keith Wood point you up on a similar point almost straight after the semi-finals when you were talking Australia's chances, not so much their chances down, but saying that they'd they'd done very well to get there. And this is certainly what Checo wants to think. But surely for the players, once they're preparing for a World Cup final, they're going to be as stressed, as pressurised as the New Zealanders, or are they not? No, I, I, I honestly don't think so. I'm not just spinning a yarn here. Um, the New Zealanders are under... They ca- carry an unbelievable burden into World Cups. They carry their entire country. They carry their prime minister. They carry their stock market. They carry the hopes and aspirations of every person in the country. They are at the pinnacle of New Zealand society. Australian rugby is nowhere near that. Australia, the, the biggest thing that's happened is that the Rugby League Grand Final, AFL Grand Final are over and the first test match against New Zealand in cricket is another two weeks away. And there's this window. We, call, we, we always joke about it. It's a horrible window through October. There's nothing. There's no, no sport. People love sport. And, and Australia have made the final. And they, they've, they've, they're making news in Australia. They're front page. Everyone's going, wow. And everyone's going, gee, you've done well, guys. This is, this is unbelievable. So they're, they're not carrying the weight. They're carrying the, the, expe- the, the joy. Everyone's going, well, that's, that's an, you've overachieved. Where in New Zealand, you're going, oh, don't lose the Australians. God, please, don't lose to the Australians. And that's, that's a totally different mindset. And New Zealand, uh, as much as they put across the, the All Black uh, a symbol and all that, what it stands for, there's a reality that they've failed away from home at every World Cup. They made the final in South Africa, and we all believe they were nobbled. We all believe they got food poisoning. And to the New Zealand's credit, they never make much of that. But we believe they did. But well, they did get a private investigator and <laughs> yeah. you know, try to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, well, and, and so they should. But what I mean is the, the boys that played that game. Yeah, they sure, haven't. The, yeah. They, Sean Fitzpatrick, they, you never hear them coming out and saying it. They did say because it's eating us up so much inside, we've, you know, for our own health, our own mental health, we've yeah. left it yeah. behind us, which shows again how much it means to them. Yeah, it does. It does. So, uh, you know, they're, they're carrying all this, this burdens. 
Now, is that going to actually add up to anything? <laughs> these are these are the little straws we're all hanging on to. Look, they're they're the New Zealand are the best side on the planet. They have been for four years. They're they're in, have played the half they played or the game they played against France was just beyond description in the quality of rugby they played. They were simply in a different league. If they turn up like that, they could that they'll win the game and win it very very easily. If it rains, they'll win it easily. Australia are going to have to have every single thing go their way, not have a sin binning, and New Zealand are going to have to make mistakes that the pressure will bring on them um, because that's, that's their only hope. Otherwise, New Zealand will win it well. When I was in New Zealand four years ago, there was people from other countries, Ireland, England, wherever, saying, oh, you know what, New Zealand deserve one. Um, they haven't won one since 87. Nobody really counts that one because it was amateur and nobody took the tournament seriously. Give them one. You know, they've been, it's, it's a... A horrible story for them to have come so close and it means so much to the country and I was thinking well if they win one they could win five in a row because the only thing that stopped them winning all the World Cups up to now is this burden of, of World Cup and the pressure that they feel and how they seem to play a little bit differently now that they've won that last one and everybody counts it as a proper World Cup I think if I honestly think if Australia Australia are doing a service to World Rugby if they win this final because if New Zealand win two in a row they could win ten in a row and kill the game yeah uh, th- there's there's something very uh, close to the truth in what you're saying, and I've thought the same thing. Dominance, unstoppable dominance in any sport or by any team for a long period of time is not healthy for the competition for that game. doesn't matter at what level. And New Zealand will dominate world rugby. Um, you know, it's like props. You know, they, they dominate the world, and that's why someone invented beer. One of the props told me that to stop props. But New Zealand will, will they, they can, they're capable. They can put out, they put out their seconds team on the field now. They'd be the second team in the final would be New Zealand. So it, it, is, it is true that uh, it would be great for the competition and great for world rugby for Australia to win. But that doesn't mean they will. Uh, they've got to earn it. Just, and this is, this is the part that the Kiwis hate. They didn't deserve to win those other World Cups. They didn't deserve to win it. They were beaten by better sides on the day. And they shouldn't have won the game at home. France should have been given the opportunity to win that game. So the final does put pressure on people that... I mean, I've never been in a World Cup final. I've been to a World Cup. I've never been to a final. I, can't, I can only imagine the pressure it puts on them. But if we also put on that's McCaw's last game, it's Conrad Smith's last game, it's uh, Ma Nonu's last game, it's Dan Carter's last game, there's all these other burdens that are falling in into this that that put a huge mix and a huge pressure on onto that team. Now this, there is massive pressure on the Australians, but less, much less, and it comes from different angles. And one of the only hopes is the pressure affects them. Now, I have heard that that from from New Zealand players that the pressure in the last final was staggering, that they 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 had never coped, never or never been exposed to pressure like it. Now, once you've won one, it's probably easier. They've, that whole team has been to a World Cup final, except for two or three guys. A lot of them have been in that group. The Australians haven't. Do these guys not have coping techniques for all that, though? I'm sure they've got the best sports psychologists you can get. The, the coaches know what to say to them. How, how do they not get it down to the cliche of playing the game rather than the occasion? Um, well, they do. They have, they have fantastic support, and the New Zealanders leave no... Stone unturned. They are uh, exceptionally well prepared, exceptionally experienced. Hundreds and hundreds of games, but uh, you know, as, as I always joke to, to people, especially when they coach kids, I tell them to calm down. It's not the World Cup final, and 
this is. This is the World Cup final. All those tricks are gone. You know, like, okay, okay, let's panic. It is the World Cup final. No, they won't panic, but it, it is... Uh, it is a major factor. David Polcock is obviously going to be key for Australia. Um, he's been chatting away this week about climate change and this sort of thing. He's a slightly unusual rugby player in a lot of ways. But how are you looking forward to his battle with McCaw and the rest of that back row? Australia won in Sydney in August because uh, McCaw was nullified by Hooper and Pocock. Um, he has been pretty close to the player of the tournament. Pretty close. He and Aaron Smith, for me, the New Zealand nine, has been... Absolutely exceptional, but Pocock has has been in the most competitive position, which is the back row. He has been far and away the best back row at the tournament. So he and he's a very unusual. I think if he outplays Macaw, he's the best player in the world at the moment. Yes, and uh, look to be to be really honest, and I think Richie Macaw has had a great tournament, as has Dan Carter. Uh, and full credit to them, they are icons of the game, and and ha- will leave the game as people that we will just look up to as human beings and as players. All that said, and, and as well as McCaw played, I think I think Pocock's played better up until this state. He's played all over Hooper. Uh, he's been much better than... And Hooper's had a fine tournament. To, com, the combination of them will, will be a huge issue for McCaw. If you can take McCaw out of the game and get fast ball against New Zealand, you've, and, and Kieran Reid to a less degree, you've got a hope. You've got a hope of beating them. If you let McCaw dominate and slow ball down and New Zealand get the defences organised and turn over ball, you, you, you're on a hiding to nothing. You'll, you'll come well and truly second. So I think he's... Now, really interesting about Pocock, he's, uh, he got sent to jail because he chained himself to a fence in um, New South Wales. Because, and it's just been on the news all over Australia today. The... the, the um, the farmers don't have the rights to stop the gas companies coming onto their farm and drilling for, nice. for, for gas and oil. And a couple of these poor farmers have committed suicide uh, in, in only last week. And it's, it was one of the people that Pocock was associated with in Sydney, in, in New South Wales. And, you know, the guy, whether you agree with him or not, he's a man of immense principle. Uh, he's a campaigner for um, marriage equality. He's a campaigner for the environment. And I'm not... I'm not getting into it but you cannot help but respect the guy because in a in a in an industry where people say don't don't stand up for anything don't you know just because you'll get them you'll get all your sponsorship products you know you'll get all these things he refuses to eat at mcdonald's and they're sponsoring what the brumbies he refuses because he doesn't believe that's good for kids and you know he cops it and he gets all these letters of warning and he gets a six thousand letters from everyone else saying good on you mate you know, it's great to have someone who's a sportsman standing up for their beliefs, not just taking the money. And I'm not suggesting the rest of the sportsmen do it. Some people don't have those beliefs. But he, he is a very interesting individual. We interviewed him a few years ago on the radio, and he came across so well. And I actually met him uh, previously in a World Cup, just at one of those group interviews, you know, those mix zones. And he was respectful to every last person who wanted to ask a question. And you, some people you can just tell straight away how principled they are, how sincere they are, and he, he just comes across brilliantly. But you know what else is amazing about him is he plays in the back row in international rugby, and he doesn't have that reputation that McCaw does. He never does anything dirty, and he actually is kind of onside most of the time. He doesn't actually break the law all that often in what he does. He just times it amazingly well, and we've talked about his body shape and all the other things he has going for him. Yeah, he's, uh, he's an extraordinary guy like that. He, he actually started, tried to start a brand of boots 
and get them manufactured where he wouldn't make any money out of it. The money was going back to Africa. He wrote a, uh, an autobiography, I wasn't sure an autobiography or a biography, but he put a, he put a biography out at, at 22. Yeah. Going, we haven't lived your life yet, mate, you know, you're just out of school. But all the money went to charity, to charities that he was interested in, and a lot of them back in Africa, because he was born in Zimbabwe and so on. But he, I, I have met him, and he's exactly like that. He's a gentleman, uh, a guy that Australian rugby can be really proud of. And it, it's it's interesting that um, McCaw is, is, is a... Uh, a one-off. If you look at him and how he, and I say this with a great respect, how he wonderfully and so masterfully gets his body in illegal positions as a back rower, but has only been sinned been two or three times in his career, and he's played 100, almost 150 test matches. That's unique. And the Australian back rowers tend not to play like that because they get blasted off the field and they get sinned bin, they get yellow card and they don't get picked. And he is, he's light, uh, this is Pocock's lightning speed from the ground to his feet to the ball and his immense power and strength uh, are, are, what he, are what he brings to the game where McCaw is just an absolute genius. I've never seen anyone get his body into those positions uh, and to think about it. And he must practice it. He, he, he is truly extraordinary. And, and he gets away with it, which is fantastic for him. Matt, the tournament's been absolutely incredible so far. Does it need a classic final, do you think, to for you to consider it the best World Cup ever? Um, n- no, no. Um, I, I'm. It's there already in your yeah, mind? Yeah, I'm worried about the final. I'm worried that the final uh, is not going to live up to expectations because I'll, I'll tell you why. The New Zealanders know how to how, have learnt how to strangle a win. I think they, they won't play expansive rugby. I think they'll get, out, get two and a half scores ahead and just shut the game down, play it. 30 metres from the Australian try line, kick it and just shut it down. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, mm. but a lot of the stats, I was just talking to some guys there who do statistical analysis, and that's certainly their opinion on, on what they think they'll do, looking at the stats from the last few games and how they can play it. Put the World Cup aside, this has been the best World Cup ever. And we can say that on, on every front. Bums on suits, the number of people at the stadiums. We've got to give huge credit to England for the way they've staged it. This hasn't been a spare suit at a game. The, the, the great joy for me, and you blokes know this, you're talking about over the last decade, is the return of running rugby. The return of the way the game's supposed to be played, the way it's meant to be played, the way it gives great joy to people watching and great joy to people playing. That, and, and, it is from, and not just from the big boys like New Zealand and Argentina, it's from Japan, it's from, from Georgia. You know, from from these from Namibia, from these minnows, these tier two and tier three teams. Ireland uh, and England are actually the outliers. Like yeah, France in this World Cup. Th- they are, they are, the, and and you've got to say Italy. So there we're, we're we're right at the Six Nations and Wales, to a lesser degree. They're not quite at the same level. So it's certainly a sent a message that the Six Nations teams are behind in their thinking, and the Six Nations Championship has to look at itself. You know, the two points for a win and loss, and I've heard arguments for and against. It's been almost 16 years since that, since the four points for a win, a bonus point for scoring four tries has been in. And, and we're still not looking at it. And France have got a bonus point system. I don't like it, but it's still a bonus point. There are no bonus points. We saw it on the last game of the tournament when they had to score tries. They, killed, they could. They went out and did it. Why not give that bonus right through the whole six games? Why not give the supporters, the teams, the opportunity to? You know, it is it is the uh, fear that somehow you're you're giving the southern hemisphere an advantage uh, that's holding the northern hemisphere back. Instead of saying, "What can we do to get in front of them?" 
it, it's every decision is coming from a negative point of view rather than a positive point of view. All right, prediction time, Matty. Are you going to lump a bit of pressure on Australia? Oh, <laughs> can I tell you what I think will happen? I yes. think I think New Zealand will win by. Uh, I think New Zealand will win by two and a half scores. Already? Yeah. What do I want to happen? I want I want Australia to come out and play some fantastic rugby to throw the ball to move it around and to put huge pressure on New Zealanders and for them to make a few mistakes. And if they do, they could win. If Australia can somehow, somehow manage a win, it will be the greatest win in World Cup history. Yeah. Okay. Well, hope you enjoy it and uh, great to have you in as always. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. So he's almost like having a second captain, isn't he? Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Oh, well, that is a scary vista there for the future of rugby that Simon Hick has presented. <laughs> if, 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 just to reiterate, Ken, if New Zealand win this weekend, mm-hmm. they will go on to win. Simon's upped it from five in a row to ten in a row. They'll and, win ten World in a row and, and kill the game. game in the process. Yes. If they win the tenth, you know the way you used to be able to keep the trophy? If New Zealand win ten in a row, they get to keep the sport. No one else is allowed to play. It's, it's banned in all in every other sovereign state except but for why, New Zealand. But why would they win another? Why would winning this one mean they're the only win? thing that stopped them winning World Cups? As I said to Maddie, was because it was World Cups. Like if you take their statistics in every other game that they play and apply it to World Cup, they should have just won every World Cup. Mm. They're the most dominant international team in any sport. Uh, the only thing that stopped them was their fear or this huge pressure that was on them as Matty said, to win World Cups. Now that's gone. Now they've won one, albeit it was at home again. That doesn't matter. If they go and win two in a row, they're Funny. confident well, on top of everything else. Sorry, well, I, well, I think that's brilliant for the sport. Winning 10 in a row? Well, if no, to have a team that's that uh, dominant means that every time that team plays in the World Cup, it's going to be an event. Is this unbeatable team going to lose? And not just World Cups, actually. that It is true. I mean, Matt talks about people getting suckered into the New Zealand hype, the all-black hype, mm. and the brand and all those kind of things. But it is good for other countries. If New Zealand are playing in Dublin, it's like, great, New Zealand are playing. The only good thing about sport is when you don't know what the result's going to be. But you don't know what the result is going to be. And if they if You've got a fair lose, idea for the whole Ireland, planet if, will if Ireland be laughing. In England. Hmm? You've got a fair idea of Ireland. Oh, yeah, but I'm still more excited there's, when you see it come to Dublin chance. than when South Africa do. Yeah, there's still... Way more excited. Because, because winning the game would be the biggest thing ever. Now, of course, you know yeah. you're probably not going to win, but, like, I don't, I, don't see that, I don't see how it's possible. I, th- I think this applies dominant. to individual sports. Like, I loved, say, Federer or Woods or what they did, mm. but I think when it applies to team sport, it doesn't work I, that way. Well, actually, I think it's... I, I would make an exception for New Zealand, purely because New Zealand is, like, you know, just this small country in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Like, it's not like this is, you know, the United States, you know, the United States and the men's basketball team. You know what I mean? It's can't lose a game or whatever, you know, it, where, where you've got like a kind of a what an obvious superpower with all of these kind of resources that like is, you know, no, nobody can really ever hope to catch up with. But I mean, not, not that's basketball yeah. team is probably a bad example, but you know what I'm talking I know, about. Yeah, I know Whereas mean, New yeah. Zealand is like this small rocky outcrop in like the middle of the sea. 
where you know with a with a small population that somehow manages to just produce all the best players in the world. I think that's amazing, actually. Uh, you've convinced me I'm going to go for plucky underdog New Zealand in the Rugby World Cup final. Well, come on, it's a, I mean, how many people live in New Zealand? Like five million? Four million, yeah. Like it's some it's incredible what they do. I think it's I think it's great. I mean it's I, I'm I'm I mean if it was okay, if if England were the New Zealand, then no one would be interested. Right, then it would be like, ah, oh, England, they just, you know, they obviously have more players than everyone. Well, you, inve- you invented the game, so obviously you're going to be the best. Yeah, yeah. But the, because because it's a small country, I think I think that makes it really interesting. Like, uh, doesn't I mean, say a whole lot for all the other countries. Just <laughs> it's a country of four million people. Yeah. The Irish Times Set Captains Football Podcast will be out today. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to oh, you now. Mean, I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> Well, Owen, uh, Seth Blatter gave a great interview to uh, the Russian news agency TASS. Ooh, a little loose. Yeah, he, he just went on and on and on. This interview goes on for so long, and he covers so much stuff, and it's this amazing kind of uh, insight into the world of Seth Blatter. Um, he's really against the... He thinks the EU have been trying to nobble him for a long time. Uh, he doesn't really like the, the uh, US either. You idiot. <laughs> and he's not... Uh, Simon's not got the hot terms, buttons working today. Not on very good terms with the with the English or Michel Platini. Or, anyway, it's, it was just interesting to hear this this long interview in which he makes several crazy uh, claims. We'll we'll talk about Sepp with uh, Gabriel Marcotti, and we're also going to talk about Rafa Benitez, um, the unbeatable Hodge. the unbeatable manager of Real Madrid. Uh, Can we talk about Ronaldo as well? I, I've just watched a trailer for the movie, and we, we're getting Sid Lowe on, right? Yeah, we're going. I'm going to ask Sid Lowe about this Ronaldo movie. It's it's got my it's got, got my attention. attention. It has yeah. certainly got my attention. All right, I mentioned the book Dub Sub Confidential Goalkeeper's Life with and without the dubs at the top of the show, and I made the point that it's, well, it's unlike any other GA book you're going to read this year, or I would say any other year for that matter. Delighted to have John Leonard in studio to talk about it. John, thanks so much for coming in, first of all. Yeah, great to be here. I've got to say, w- extraordinary book. Uh, congratulations on it, first of all. Uh, one of the things that's, that sort of came into my head a few times over the course of it was, I wonder what his, the, his friends and family think about this how have they reacted to you being so open about your life yeah i mean there's been a couple of couple of reactions um most people are very positive and very enthusiastic and uh you know have been have been complimentary on me being so uh, upfront about things but a couple of people have uh, sort of retracted a little bit <laughs> to a degree because you know they like uh, one of my sisters just doesn't want to read a lot of it um and you know a couple of friends have been it's just by the very nature of what I've been talking about, a little bit uh, colder, I suppose, afterwards, you know. Um, and I suppose that's the nature of being upfront and honest about stuff. It really, um, it just makes people feel out of their comfort zone, takes them out of their comfort zone a little bit. Have you found that since you started talking about everything that's happened to you and trying to process that, that people, there, different people react in different ways to that? Some people are, are happy to talk uh, and maybe a lot of people are slightly uncomfortable with, with too much honesty? Yeah, yeah, both really. I mean, I've I've got a lot of messages, emails, and that from people who have been, you know, it's kind of funny because when you write something like this, it me it sort of makes it exist in other people's heads, you know, when they read about things in papers and that, so they they kind of feel like they know your story, and then they, you know, great that they feel like they can actually get in touch, and when people reach out like that, it just uh, 
it's it just sort of shows humans are especially in Ireland here are very open to to people at one level really trying to f- confront certain issues on another level some people have actually just you know they just don't know how to react you know so um i think it's a little bit of both you know people some people are very good and happy about it and other people just kind of retract a little. What about yourself? Did you already, when you sat down to write this, did you, because it's your story and that's probably the most important thing, did you already have an idea already? Had you fully processed everything that had happened in your life and the destructive nature of a lot of what you had done and, and what had happened to you? Or was it a case that you started writing this and, and almost examined your life through the process of writing the book? I think when... When I when I first sat down and started, I mean, the only way I was able to to put everything into a context of a book w- was by being sort of cool with it and being over it or being being sort of done with that period of my life. And I could actually write about it. I could look back on it. Um, but then even as I was writing it, the very process of it, you know, talking about stuff that happened in my childhood, talking about all the, the, the drugs I took and the drink and, and the situations I put myself in. And then even by that nature, talking about being with the dubs and, and then the, the joy and then the pain of that uh, afterwards, all that just comes back and you do get to sort of go over it all again. And it, and it kind of does, in one way, in a sense, just finish all of that off. You know, it, it really does, whether it's, you know, the, the bad things and the good things, it kind of puts a full stop at the end of it. And uh, it just lets you kind of move on with, with that part of your life. And, uh, you know, getting getting through it all, really getting through the... The, the guts of writing, it really has been a sort of cathartic and, and uh, you know, refreshing experience for me as a person. You mentioned what happened in your childhood there. You touched on it and this was the abuse, the sexual abuse you suffered at, um, at the hands of Father Ivan Payne. This is something um, that you eventually told your parents about around, it had happened from when you were very young, about nine years of age, and you eventually told your parents in leaving cert year. Mm. What prompted you to, to open up about it? There was a couple of things. I mean... I, I think what happened at the time, um, there, there, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, another guy had, had actually come forward in the Catholic uh, and, and complained about the same priest. And so the word of that had filtered out into the sort of public domain. And um, I, I, at the time, was quite an angry... I'd, I'd sort of rebelled against my dad's ideas about the church and that, and we used to argue a lot about it. And um, I remember him just talking to me one day, and we, we were having a good argument about the, the church and... and uh, the priest in particular, and he started asking me, and I think he had heard maybe through the grapevine that there was, you know, rumours of abuse having happened, and he, and he sort of asked a few questions about why I was so angry, and um, and in the end, you know, it all came out. I just I just told him there in the porch in our old house, and uh, you know, it was a very sad and traumatic day for everybody. But um, looking back, it was probably one of the better things that's happened to me as well because it's it's you know, it's put an end to to something. That was a secret, you know, and, and having that kind of secret in your in your mind is uh, it's very very destructive. Even though the ten or fifteen years afterwards was pretty destructive too, because I didn't deal with the the issues that came up. Well, even uh, as you describe in the book, telling your parents that that scene that you say now is cathartic. At the time, you felt guilty about it. You felt guilty about, I guess, bringing this level of pain into their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird, it's a really weird thing, you know. I don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome or or something, you yeah. know. But you do have this kind of you don't want to, to shatter the way people, you know, you don't want to shatter how people live their lives. You know, you want people, and my parents especially, and because my dad, more than my mother, was very devout Catholic and he was very staunch about it and very strict about it, to, to have to tell him what happened was, was shattering, you know, for his w- worldview, you know. So it just really was, it was upsetting from that perspective. I didn't want to have to do it, but, you know, 
you have to. Ultimately, it's it's not right to keep it in. What sort of impact did the investigation that followed have on you? The investigation ultimately, this priest was was jailed for a number of years. What happened to your own mindset and how you viewed life at that stage? Oh, it's it's hard to sort of quantify exactly, but I, you know, I did really get. I, I went on a bit of a, a spiral, you know. I became kind of reckless in, in terms of how I, I, I sort of viewed the world. I didn't really care, you know. I, I got really uh, depressed is probably not the right word, but I was definitely, I, I put myself on the edge and I put myself into a zone where I just didn't really, I was just extremely careless, you know. It took away kind of the, the also maybe the moral teachings I'd been given. I, I just let everything go and I went, I went like around a few years after the revelations had come out and the, I went to Australia and once I went there, I just let the, I let the handbrake off and I went on, a, on an absolute mad one. Was know? that a conscious decision though? Was it, were you thinking, listen, I deserve this. I actually deserve, I've had a, uh, I, and none of us can even fathom how traumatic it would have been. I've had this experience. It's out in the open now. I've told my parents, I'm going to Australia and I'm going to get messed up here. It wasn't, it wasn't because uh, I, I didn't tell anybody who I was in Australia with, so nobody else knew that I was going through this kind of emotion in my head. So everybody else, every, I mean, most people are, a lot of people are partying and that kind of stuff over there, but I still had this other little demon on the back of my head, in the back of my shoulder, just saying, you know, that there's something else deeper going on. So um, at one end, I, I, I did, I just wanted to get away, I got away from home and I just wanted to get out and, and let loose. But another part of me was, there was a deeper kind of... Uh, pain or something that was being being shoveled away so that's what I really had to you know it, it was a tough moment a tough few years from that perspective because I kept it a secret even though it was out in the open so it was this weird kind of two sort of double life yeah. going on for me you know but, and you were you were running from it were you trying to were you trying to forge a new identity you know people do this even who haven't suffered this kind of uh, uh, this kind of abuse or anything like it people go away and they decide I'm actually going to be someone different over here was that part of the plan yeah, I, I think so. I mean, and I've always done that up until up until the last few years in my life. You know, after I've, I've always run away. You know, and people do it. It's an easy option. You know, you run away. You can reinvent yourself. You can uh, you can hide. You know, you can you can drink and take drugs or whatever it is. You know, and and, and physically you can remove yourself. Like I, I lived in, I went to Australia, and I came back to Ireland for for a year or two, and then I couldn't handle it, um, and I went away again. I went to Greece and I went to India, and then I came back again. Um, and luckily enough, I got the opportunity to get back in with the, the Dublin uh, setup, and I, and I did, and I took it, and I enjoyed three of the best years of my life. But then once that was over again, I, I couldn't handle it being here, and I ran away uh, to Australia, back to Australia, and went on another spiral, you know. So yeah. it was a, it was a, it's a co- constant thing for me, you know. It was, it was an easy option, just get away from here, you know. I know we're, we're so far we're focusing on that part of it, but... It re- really interested me that even in the midst of all this, you know, you you describe in vivid detail some of these insane times in your life, and yet you'd be in Goa or you'd be in Australia, you'd be somewhere, and suddenly you'd start thinking about the dubs again. I mean, you played, you'd, you very talented goalkeeper, you'd played, you'd won championships with Sylvester's, you'd uh, played for the Dublin under twenty ones, hadn't got the call up uh, initially to the senior team, and then had faded away a little bit, but it never fully left you the idea, I'm going to come back, I'm going to play for the dubs. I think that part of my life was always there, and uh, you know, the, the GAA as an institution and Sylvester's as a club, and uh, the idea of playing for the Dubs, the three the, of those things really were a, a grounding force in my life that I didn't have. I, I didn't let in elsewhere. I mean, I had my uh, uh, sort of a figure in my, in my dad who was quite good at, at sort of 
putting me down the right road. But the GAA and what it offered was something that was always there in the back of my head, that was always kind of calling me back, and that always gave me an out. And um, it was it's something you know that that still hasn't left me alone. To get back here and to see the Dubs winning a few mm. weeks ago was incredible. Uh, I hadn't been here for years, but to actually uh, to play for Dublin was was always a dream of mine. It was, it was something I wanted as a, as a kid. And, you know, even when I was in my mid-twenties, I was in India and I was uh, I was feeling extremely at a very, very low point. And uh, I was in my mid to late twenties and I just thought, you know, maybe there's still a chance. Maybe there's still hope, you know, because I was still physically fit. And I just, you know, I always had a belief in my ability, but I knew I had psychological issues. Um, so I thought if I could get, get away from that brain of mine <laughs> and get into just being a, a physical person who just played football, I could actually... I could actually do something and achieve something. So, yeah. Can you remember your first call up to the Dublin Seniors? Yeah, it was. It was um, I, I was in a. I was in a pretty dishevelled state, to be honest, because I'd had a pretty big uh, Christmas, and um, I, I was in an apartment I was living in, in just uh, in in Dublin, in the city, and uh, I got a phone call from Brian Talty, who used to manage us in Sylvester's, who'd actually been it was a selector with uh, with Dublin at the time. He'd just been uh, involved with Pillar Catholic's reign and. Uh, so the how you sham uh, Tal's here. Uh, I said, "Jeez, Tal's, how'd you get my phone number? You know, uh, how you know me, sir? Uh, listen, do you want to come out for an old game at the weekend?" And I said, "But who for?" I said, "With the Dubs." He goes, "Who else? <laughs> who the feck else?" <laughs> so that's who it was. You know, uh, who gave me a call? It was amazing. You know, I was I was blown away. But honestly, and I'm not just making this up. I was I was wrecked. My body. I'd, I'd had a few mad nights, and I was um, I was feeling extremely weak. My bones, my chest. I was smoking heavily. At the time, I was just in a, in a bad way, so I went and, and did a few push-ups and sit-ups there, and then went for a bit of a run and, and got myself together. But um, didn't have a particularly good game in the trial, but didn't have a bad game. But I think they knew what I, I was capable of, of offering to the squad, so they gave me a call-up, which was uh, yeah, it was a lifesaver. Honestly, it was. This was the Pillar Caffrey reign, as you say. Yeah. So it was the the blue book, the arms linked, marching towards the hill, the semi-final yeah. against Mayo. You're yeah. involved in quite a lot of these these big days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff is uh, is kind of notorious at this stage. Um, and, and for me, you know, honestly, like to go from being where I'd been, I'd been all over the place for years, and to go from there to being in the, the, the dressing room of my childhood dream team, you know, it was I felt so privileged and honoured and, and I loved every second of it. And to have things, you know, like the blue book or... Um, all these sort of little things that we were talking about in training sessions about how to get an edge and how to get something that was, you know, give us a little bit of something extra. I mean, that's, you know, people can talk about what they want about, you know, the, the things that they, we tried under that regime, but they essentially we were trying anything we could to get an edge to get us over the line, you know. Um, unfortunately, it never happened, you know. We were a few, just a few little moments of, of whether it was composure or decision-making short over a few years and... Uh, yeah, it was a pity. It sounds like you loved that side of it, though. There's a quote, uh, it was commitment. This is your time at the dubs. It was commitment at a heavy physical and deep emotional level. Mm. And maybe that's something you were looking for. I mean, that's maybe partly the 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 release you were getting elsewhere through drugs and drink. But you had it with the dub and you, you could pour your emotion. And as you say, you could be a, maybe a more physical being with the dubs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you're involved in a setup like that, especially if you... You know, if you if you if you really want to be there, and most lads do, you have that incredible uh, feeling of of being uh, um, being connected and being part of it. And that's why when you when you when you finish your career or when you when you're kicked off a panel or you know dropped from a panel, it's so impactful. So um, to be there 
it, it did. It gave me meaning. It gave me everything I wanted in life. You know, it did. And there's no uh, getting away from that. You know, I, I was going out with a girl at the time and she, she left because she couldn't handle it. My life was just work, football, work, football, 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 football. And that was it. You know, there was nothing else. I thought about it. I spoke about it. And, uh, you know, when you're involved in, in that setup, and especially again, maybe it's the same for everyone who's come through the ranks, but because I'd been away course, and because yeah. I'd been, I'd done every drug under the sun and because I'd been, I knew what it was like to be out of sorts with life itself. And to be there, to be in the place of my childhood dreams was, you know, it was incredible and I appreciate every second. You had one barrier to actually starting in the in the first team though, yeah. in the shape of Stephen Cluxton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I was up against the best uh, goalkeeper of our generation. Um and at the time, look, we didn't even get to an All-Ireland final. And I say in the book, he won two All-Stars in that time, um, which is testament to sort of the standards that he was setting and playing uh, to when he was in, involved. And maybe, you know, in a sort of a weird <clears throat> self-complimentary way, it was kind of what we were doing in the goalkeeping uh, training and that sort of stuff, and especially with Gary Matthews. He uh, was a great coach and really did help, <clears throat> excuse me, hone in all, all the sort of little small uh, minuscule things and that again was something I love to be part of to train with Stephen and to, to train with Gary and Paul Copeland and, and uh, Michael Savage all both very good goalkeepers in the Roma as well it was um, it was a real privilege because you, again you get to see how the best are and what they're doing and how they're doing it so unfortunately Stephen didn't get injured or uh, dropped form significantly enough uh, for me to get a look in and you're very honest about that <clears throat> also you know uh, it's it's how all players think but sports people don't always admit to their true feelings in these matters mm. you were just hoping that there was an injury nothing too serious but an injury that would let you in or yeah. maybe Cluxton could lose the head from time to time maybe he'd throw a wobbler and get sent off I mean a, a little red card or a little <laughs> swing of a hip <laughs> or nothing something major, yeah, nothing yeah. major just a little red. I mean it would have been a black card in these days I mean looking back uh, the Leinster final against Offaly in, in 2006 he would have got a black card for this, the foul uh, that he, he did on one of their forwards and he was clean through so I was hoping you know, hoping against hope that he would have done something a little more serious. I mean, that's, you know, you can you can pretend to a degree that you're there for the team, uh, which you are. You know, you want the team to do well. And obviously, Stephen's an incredible goalkeeper, but I wanted to play, you know, and I wanted to test myself in the in the high-pressure situations. And I loved it. I mean, when I was in, playing even in Parnell Park under, you know, ten or 12,000 people, it was an amazing feeling and, and it charges you and you really want to perform well, you know, it really, for me, it brought out the best in me and I, I wanted to, to do that in front of 80,000 people, you know, it'd be an incredible feeling, but uh, he was too consistent and, and, you know, he wasn't going to give up his spot. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a book by Christy O'Connor, I don't know if you've heard of it, Last Man Standing, yep. it's better. Yeah, it's, heard, it, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. I don't yeah. know if you remember the story about David Fitzgerald there, that David Fitzgerald in his early days with Clare is in competition with some other guy for, um, for the goalkeeping spot. And he knows the route to work that the other guy has to drive. Yeah. So he deliberately cycles down, pucks a few balls against, yeah. a few against the wall just to show you that I'm training away here at six in the morning yeah, or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'd imagine Cluxton might have been <laughs> along those lines. He, he, he'd always, no matter what you did, he was probably doing more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried, like, I, in, in the way it sort of works seasonally, there's, there's the winter training and then it, and the, the clocks go back and the summer training happens. So we moved to St. David's in Artane and... Uh, the, the hours go back so it's, you can get there a little bit earlier and get out training and that sort of stuff so I just thought I'd come earlier and earlier and just show that I was more committed than, than Clucko himself and uh, I, I'd go 15 minutes earlier to training he was out, out in the field already another 15 minutes earlier he was out the, I was coming 
for training to start at seven. I was coming just after five o'clock to get there at the same time as him. And I couldn't physically get there any earlier because of work commitments and that. So I just sort of went, well, what, I can't, what can I do? I can't, I can't out, I can't out effort him yeah. and uh, I can't out experience him. So I'm just hoping and praying because he, I mean, his, there's no wonder that he's the, you know, sort of number one for the last few years. Well, yeah. When the championship would mm. end, I mean, it's, it's, we're almost talking about it at the moment, like it's two separate periods of your life, but the drugs didn't go away entirely and they, mm. they were still there. Maybe particularly when the championship would end when you were playing for Dublin, it's free reign then. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's kind of the way my brain still worked because of the way that, you know, it, I always kind of needed that release to a degree because it, being a sub and being in that situation where you're not getting a game, you build up so much emotion and so much energy to to be part of this uh, group, and you don't get to you don't get to release that. Um, and for me, I, I've, unfortunately, my 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 little demons were always there. You know, they never kind of truly went away. And I, like, I, I would never have done it while we were still involved in you know in the championship and that. But when when the when the championship championship season was over, the all bets were off kind of thing. I just I just let it go because. Um, I knew that you know in a few months' time everything would be out of my system and I'd be well able to to perform again at least in my head you know and unfortunately you know looking back uh, I mean if I if I could do it all again and do it completely sober and do it where I gave everything 100% effort who knows what would have happened but you know they're not, that's not the kind of questions you should really ask no. without tormenting yourself of course and then, yeah and then go back and to drink <laughs> <laughs> was there in all of this John was there uh, rock bottom uh, this is maybe the cliche that we all think mm. if, if somebody is struggling with these sort of demons that there's one moment there's one point maybe this is just in the movies I don't know but there's one point where you just hit the bottom and physically emotionally spiritually think I, I, I there's only one way to go from here I think th- there was a few rock bottoms but Ultimately, there was a, pl- a time and a place when I was in. I'd gone back to Australia in two thousand, early two thousand and nine, uh, and I was living on my friend's floor, in his office, and I um, had no job, no visa, no no money. Really, I was down to my last few quid, and uh, I woke up. Um, it was actually the anniversary of my dad's passing away, and I woke up in a laneway, uh, with no money, no wallet. I, I'd, I'd obviously taken a few smacks. My face was kind of bruised. Um, I was behind a big old dumpster, a rubbish dumpster, and then. Um, I didn't know where I was, you know, and I kind of like went, this isn't, this just isn't cool anymore, you know, this has to stop, like, honestly, it has to stop because, you know, there's not really many places you can go after that that doesn't result in physical, uh, you know, on a really bad physical condition, mm-hmm. so, and that was it, emotionally I was spent as well, and um, I, I, I decided there and then that I had to really stop, and I spoke to my friends about it over there at the time, and they sort of said, "Yeah, look, we know you have a problem," <laughs> because I mean I'd been fighting with them a couple of physically, and they knew I was, you know, off the rails really when I get drinking. And a lot of people might have never really thought that I had a drinking problem, but I knew I did, and I knew I had. Like when I even now, if I think about going on the beer, I don't think about having a couple of pints and chewing the fat over the weekend's football. I think about going on an absolute mad one, and how do I clear up tomorrow? So we can go and have 15 pints and a couple of lines and get right into it, you know. And that's the way my brain thinks, which, you know, um, it's great fun when you're young to a degree. But as you get older or as you do it too often, it's a completely destructive experience. How did you actually get sober then, though? It took a lot of hard work and time. I mean, I, I had to really reinvent myself. And I, I didn't actually go to AA, which I probably should have. I didn't get counselling, which I probably should have. But um I met a girl, Serena, who's now my wife, who was uh, extremely supportive of him. You know, we, we were, I moved out to Bondi in Australia and uh, it's a nice sort of beach area and I was able to just remove myself from my friends. I kept away from them 
And uh, you know, I really, um, I really just worked on on doing other things, and um, it was it was true. Just basically not being around alcohol, even though, ironically enough, I was working. I had got job working in a bar, um, but I just I, I just ch- changed my mindset completely. I said I just I'm not drinking, and I fell off the wagon a good few times. Um, but ultimately, I was able to clear from my life and um, in. Just nearly six years ago, we I, we started a web. I started a website called Sober Paddy, and it's where I started doing little videos about my, my trials and how to get over it, and essentially putting myself out there and being accountable and open to the world about what I was doing made me feel like look, I can't go back here, and uh, I haven't gone back. So, being open and, and accountable for me to the world has, has helped me stay on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and you've been talking to other people as well who've gone through experiences. Christy Dignam, these kind of guys yeah. uh, have seemed to have had a bit of an impact. Tess Bishop, all the rest. Tess yeah. Bishop, all yeah. this, yeah. They're, they've been amazing. You know, I've been doing a few, I'm hopefully talking to a few people this week here in Ireland as well to um, people who are sober here. Like just some incredible people who have amazing lives who are extremely sober and they have a great time. And, and for me, growing up, I always had thoughts that that couldn't happen for some weird I always you know when your peers yeah. but you it's, it's, not, it's not weird at all and mm-hmm. even like, most people don't end up going to the extremes that you did but mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of us have grown up thinking that that you mm-hmm. have to go out and have a, a, a good lorry load of booze to have a good time yeah I mean I mean, most people can you can go out and have a few pints and love it and have a great time but some, some of us are just uh, you know we have a little DNA click that makes us a little bit more I don't know a bit more crazier on it so yeah we, we can't do it so Look, I'm just happy now that we're uh, we're at a stage where I'm 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 pretty comfortable with who I am and where I am. So yeah, you're good. you're still traveling, yeah, but it's a, a more maybe I don't know. It's certainly not destructive anymore. You're, yeah. you're seeing the world in a different way. Yeah, I mean we've we've been going around the world for the last three and a half years. We've been uh, filming little uh, documentaries of, of people who are making a difference, and we have them all up on our site five point five, which where we basically um, we go. We've been traveling like this, uh, seeing different places, seeing incredible people visiting orphanages, different charities and um, telling their stories, you know. So that's that's what we've been doing and we, we plan on going to Africa next year and carrying it on. Okay, well, uh, it's absolutely brilliant. And listen, uh, Dub Sub Confidential is the name of the book. Extraordinary read, really. Uh, it's been absolutely great talking to you, John. Thanks so much. Thanks, so. Cheers. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. the humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. All right, that was John Leonard on, on his book, Dub Sub Confidential. I really enjoyed that chat. I hope I appreciate him talking about you know, this in, in, intensely personal stuff there. And I know it's in the book, as the phrase might go, but it's not necessarily easy for somebody to relive some of that stuff in, in interviews in a, in a sort of studio environment. So fair play to John on that one. A great insight into the mindset of a sub goalkeeper as well, Murph. Mm. Yeah, you kind of do want the guy to get injured there. Yeah, it's, it's, and, but he speaks really well as Stephen Cluxon throughout the, the whole book. It's not, it's not as though he actually wants him to be hurt. He just wants him not to be there on the field because he wants to have Yeah, I mean, shot. nothing, you know, nothing, nothing too drastic. Just a little hamstring strain maybe on a Friday and he's fine by the Monday. Yeah. But uh, something that uh, enables John to get, actually get out onto the field. And I think that um, 
uh, it would be weird given the searing honesty with which he wrote the rest of the book for him to then <laughs> revert to kind of sporting cliche when he's talking about because I mean if you're a sub on a team uh, you know you're not there for the, the team I mean you're part of a team but you're there for yourself you're doing it for yourself so the idea that uh, you should be delighted to be a sub and that you can just hold your hands up and say for the good of the team this is great I mean that's just not how humans work he outlines really well the intensity required of a substitute which is just as he says himself you do 97 98% of the stuff that the starting team does just the 1 or 2% is that you don't play in the games you do all the you do everything you make the same sacrifices you do all that stuff and then you're sitting on the bench and with Cluxon as well there's one Upburn the Upburn Cup starts in January one year and he's thinking right well I mean I'm the firmly established now as a number 2 choice and like Cluxon's got it he was why would he be playing this first mm. Auburn Cup game. Team is named Cluxon number one. <laughs> He's like, come on, okay, let uh, me play this Auburn yeah. Cup match. But there's that, there are a lot. I mentioned that book, Last Man Standing, the Chrissy O'Connor book during the interview there, which was uh, brilliant about the sort of philosophy of goalkeepers and the lifestyle mm. and the ethos of, of what they think about it. You read, I know, the game by Ken Dryden, famous yeah, ice great book goalkeeper. as well. Yeah, I there's mean, there's a certain thing cachet about that position. Jonathan Wilson's written about goalkeepers. Yeah, Don Logue, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's not a. Uh, well, there is. There's plenty of stuff about being a brilliant goalkeeper in Don Logue's book as well. It's uh, it's just not what that book's remembered for, I suppose. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if interesting people playing goals and that's why they write interesting books or is there something inherently interesting about the position? But Ken, I mean, Ken Dryden's book is it's it's actually it's one that I really would recommend people uh, try and find uh, the game, as you said, Um because he, it's just a, he's, a, it's a very, he's a very strange person to be, to have ever met it in a major sport. Because he just, he seems to think about things in a completely different way to any other sportsman that I've ever really come really? across. You know, and to the extent that he kind of talks about, why am I doing this? This is really stupid. This uh, is a bizarre way to earn a living, and it's yeah. nearly, it, it kind of seems this kind of beneath me that you know I, this has kind of chosen me more than I've chosen it um, but yeah for whatever reason there are brilliant uh, brilliant books written by goalkeepers and Dub Sub Confidential is uh, one you can add to the list we were talking about David Pocock earlier on Murph and uh, you've alert- Kent's, Kent's favourite uh, rugby player of all time Pocock? Yeah. Um, thought Andrew Sheridan was your favourite as well no, no I mean Andrew Sheridan Stephen Jones's favourite uh, Pocock is he, he just likes impersonating like, Neil Francis I just like the way Neil Francis <laughs> I just like the way Neil Francis was saying the word Pocock when he was on TV with uh, Matt Maddie, in the last, in Maddie Wins. In the last World Cup. Uh, yeah, what was it? Frano and Maddie and Frano. Yeah. I still love that show. Well, it was... Seriously could watch that show like all the... If I turned on the TV, if if, if, I, if that show could be on every time I turned on the TV, I would, what did you I like would about seriously it? just have it on in the background all the time. Yeah. Just well, the two of them kind of sitting there looking at each other and just talking about whatever. Like, yeah. just but looking at each other especially. There was a great freedom to Satanta's 24-hour round-the-clock <laughs> coverage of the last World Cup, I will say. Uh, yeah. but there he's... was a certain freewheeling back to the early days of television, kind of. And I mean that with respect, as in, that there's basically all the time in the world for you to talk about the topic that you love the most. Yeah. So, we won't overburden good. you with big four-person panels here. It's... No. Matt and Neil, but yeah. uh, but what uh, about August? Look, at least at least I mean Neil Francis not only said the name Pocock beautifully, but never forgot it. Unlike uh, Jerome Kino, go on. 
who has apparently just forgotten his name. Really? You're joking me. Well, no, not not quite. According to Murray Kinsler here, I'm just reading Murray. I think he must be at the press conference. Yep. Jerome Quino has just forgotten David Pocock's... Oh, God. <laughs> Jerome Quino has just forgotten David Pocock's first name. Has to lean into Kieran Reid to ask. <laughs> but maybe, God. you know, it's just... He is just... He is Pocock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you know, like, apparently... No, well, what do you... No. No, well, he's known it's, as... This is disrespect. This is disrespectful. Well, he's to, just from known the plucky, as Pocock. They may be you know plucky I mean? underdogs, New Zealand, but that smacks of some disrespect. <laughs> he's been the player of the... He's the best player in the world. Yeah, but he's just Pocock. You don't need, you know, David. <laughs> David is kind of almost... That's ridiculous. B- a pathetic touch. Yeah. For example, do you think, say, Xavi, for example, loves Paul Scholes? Do you think he knows Paul Scholes' first name? No. It's Scholes. Scholes. Rooney. Rooney, yeah. And they have a ton of respect for those players. You're, you're both talking complete crap. Jerome Kaido has just forgotten David Pocock's name. This is First unbelievable. Name. Whatever. It, they're both, he only has two of them. You know? I mean, Pocock. Something Pocock. Best read, player in the I world. Actually, something Pocock. Is I read recently I feel Pocock. he might not believe him to be the best this, player This is world. probably you know, one of the most famous things <clears throat> about David Pocock. But his, uh, he refuses to marry his girlfriend until... Maddie um, mentioned loads of his uh, uh, his uh, outspoken stances on things, but he didn't mention this one actually. Yes. Yeah, he 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 won't marry his girlfriend on on principle until marriage equality is instituted in Australia. Okay. Yeah. I I wasn't sure about that. I have to say, I think why why does this poor woman have to have to pay the price for Australia's lack of liberal? She, I'm sure she believes in it as well. I mean, yeah. I think he, maybe just choice. not quite as strongly as David. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. Well, look, but absolutely, absolutely going on know. holidays to Paris again this year. But uh, uh, no point in uh, there. Are things, the there are things I respect about his stance, but uh, you know, sometimes I just will we climb the Eiffel Tower? Ah, forget it, forget it. All right, enjoy the final of the weekend. Hopefully, the plucky underdogs of New Zealand can do it for Ken, yeah. if not for their good luck, supporters. William Pocock. We hope you can do the move. This <laughs> thanks for this thing. Thanks, uh, Kieran. Thank you all. Thank you, Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 